Hey everyone, welcome to episode 104 of the Health Unchained podcast. I appreciate all my listeners and supporters who believe in the mission of this podcast, which is to serve as a communication bridge from web two business models to web three disruption in healthcare. One promise of web three is to provide individuals with greater freedom and control over their own assets and ultimately over their own bodies and minds. For most of history, societal leaders have called the shots and people followed. Oftentimes, the rules were used to suppress individual freedom and choice. One example that has gotten a lot of attention recently is the enforcement of wearing a hijab or a headscarf in Iran, where a 22-year-old Iranian woman, Masa Amini, was arrested by the morality police for incorrectly wearing her hijab and subsequently allegedly beaten in the head and killed by Iranian police forces in a police van. Iran's chief justice has promised a full investigation into the matter, and police are saying she died after being taken to a hospital because she had a heart attack. Meanwhile, her family and millions of people aren't buying this explanation and have taken to the streets in protest of the tragedy. At least 75 people have died in protests and many arrested by Iranian forces. Many women across the world are burning their hijabs and cutting their hair as a protest to Iran's violence against women. I bring this up because throughout history, women have had to fight for their fundamental rights to be respected. Even in the US, it recently became legal for a state to prohibit its citizens from having an abortion. In scientific research, women's reproductive health is also significantly underfunded when compared to men's health. There's less female representation in clinical trials and conditions such as ovarian aging, endometriosis, postmenopausal osteoporosis have less of a chance of receiving funding when compared to con when compared to conditions that primarily affect men such as erectile dysfunction or prostate cancer. In this episode, I speak with Laura Minkini, co-founder of AthenaDAO, which is a decentralized autonomous organization working to use blockchain to reduce the funding gap in research and provide researchers with community funding opportunities. We talked about how women's reproductive health is viewed in research communities, as well as the benefits and challenges of building in Web3. I really enjoyed this conversation and I hope you do too. Remember, the Health Unchained podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only, and we are not providing any sort of legal, financial, or medical advice. Please do your own research and due diligence before making any important decisions related to these matters. And now, let's get to the show. Hi, I'm your host, Ray Dogan, and welcome to Health Unchained. On this show, I'll be speaking with healthcare entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and executives who are using blockchain technologies to revolutionize healthcare. These innovators are building the distributed infrastructure and diverse communities required for a trusted, secure, and decentralized healthcare ecosystem. Enjoy the show. What is blockchain? What is blockchain? What is blockchain? The doctor will see you now. Welcome to Health Unchained. Today's guest is Laura Minkinney, and she is the CEO of Mikey Guy which is a longevity community, and she's also a longevity advocate. But today we're going to be talking about her most recent endeavor, which is Athena DAO, which I'm really interested in. And it's a decentralized collective to fund women's reproductive health research. So Laura, welcome to the show. Hi, Ray. Thanks so much for having me today. Very much looking forward to this conversation. Me too. Absolutely. Before we get started, could you give the audience just a brief background about your career so far and I just need personal information you want to share with them? Yeah, so I love longevity because it gives us the opportunity for many lives and I feel like I've had many lives. I actually started my career in fashion publishing. I was an editor, fashion editor and creative director when I came out of school and that led me to actually getting more on the business side of things eventually when I moved to Europe. I was doing trend forecasting for companies like LVMA branding and brand strategy and going to market strategies. So that was very interesting. And it was a while back because trend, when trend forecasting was a thing, it was very different from now how everybody has access to everything through TikTok, Instagram, you name it. So that led me to a huge opportunity to launch my own company. I had a co-founder who we were doing accessories for Apple products. And it was licensing. We were the first ones to do it on fashion, uh, with fashion uh, brands. 
So we had distribution all around the world, Amazon, Apple, also fashion distribution, Harvey Nichols, Neiman Marcus, you name it. We were all over. We were a distributor globally. And that was a great time in my life. We did that about eight years. It was great, but I also discovered a lot of what we do with the environment. As I was going to China four or five times a year, and I got to see how all the stuff that we consume is made. So a couple of leads, I mean, seeing that, thinking, is this what I'm going to do forever? My business partner also thinking of other business ideas. We decided to sell the company. So we did that. And it was great because after that, after that, it gave me some time to think about what is it that I want to do next, that it's important and makes a good impact in society and also doesn't destroy the environment. So you have to think a lot. Oh, and there's the aspect of also just making money, right? Yeah, just to the audience, to be clear, when you say how you saw things being made in China, are you talking about all the plastic material? Yeah, so the plastic materials. I mean, specifically, I'm referring to that. I'm not an expert in uh, production, but what I saw with the plastic, the cables, I remember going into places, even seeing young women working and smelling those fumes and thinking there's no way that these women are not going to be sick later from smelling this 12 hours a day, five days a week. So I really wanted to do something that had a positive impact. And it's not that easy if you think not producing things, not selling things for people just to consume. So by pure fluke, I discovered the world of aging. And I say discover because I wasn't thinking about it by volunteering my dog at retirement homes and hospitals. And I was shocked by it. I realized that the so-called innovation was not happening there because we were aging the same that we had been aging since the turn of the century. The model had been the same. And the more research I did on it, I did a market study. It led me to finding longevity biotech. And then I thought, this is where we can make the difference in prevention and regeneration. Like people, 80% of Americans right now want to age in place. How do we do that? I think by people staying healthy as long as they can. And how do we stay healthy? But having a preventive mode of of health, not a reactive. Because once you're in reactive, you're just taking care of symptoms. How do you prevent Alzheimer's? How do you prevent sarcopenia, like muscle mass? How do you frailty all those things? Longevity Biotech, I think, has the best um, shot at doing that. And I got involved because looking at the field, I thought they had a problem in branding and communication. And the role I've been playing for the past two years is really trying to um, spread the word with the consumer, trying to make uh, the science understandable, as well as elevating the word of scientists. I'm sure you know from COVID, I mean, your podcast is about health. People became most dist- more distrustful for, about science. It can become a polarized issue. It's not just, we believe in science. Now there's politics attached to it. There's a distrust of pharma. There's so many things that play into it that um, we have a long way to go into getting people more interested in even understanding longevity. But just to rush to how we got to Athena Dow was, while I was working on longevity, I discovered Vita Dow. Obviously, they became like a big player about last year. Exploring that, I thought what they were doing was, because I was also already curious about crypto, I was already buying some ETH and Bitcoin just to, not as an expert, but to have just test how that worked. And when I realized what they were doing, I thought, okay, this is like a really interesting, amazing model, trying to fund unfundable, and then I say unfundable, not easy to fund longevity research or things that get overlooked, or more importantly, things that are very early on. And really focusing on the academia and researcher side rather than the just the general startup, because a lot of these biotech startups, their genesis comes from research that somebody who's passionate about science is doing at a lab or in academia. And making the transition from people that love being at the lab into something that could potentially be translational for people, it's quite a jump especially if they don't know how to go get funding or they don't know how venture funds work. So I learned more about Vita Dow. And at the same time, in my longevity advocacy, I had the fortune of meeting Dr. Jennifer Garrison. She's the co-founder and president of the Global Consortium for Reproductive Longevity. 
So through that meeting and interview, I learned a lot. I obviously I had to do the research for the interview. And what I found really shocked me that the first consortium was founded in 2018, that uh, reproductive longevity or aging is not that funded either. So if you think longevity is a tiny sliver, reproductive longevity and specifically female women's reproductive longevity, it's like, it's a drop in the ocean and what we're looking at. And the crazy thing about it is that it's a great model to study the ovary to figure out even aging in general. But for some reason, we're not looking at it. So I became more, obviously more passionate about this because I also learned other things like women age faster during the period of menopause or cellular aging is about 6% faster than in other, I mean, before that. And this is one of the reasons women come out of menopause with cardio, more propensity for cardiovascular disease, Alzheimer's, and neurodegenerative diseases. And then there's postmenopausal osteoporosis, your bone mass um, really decreases. So all these things made me think, okay, how can I become even more granular in my mission of aging better? Because as a woman, I want to also advance women's causes. And to me, I started a project with Invita DAO that I thought it has to be its own DAO. We need to really just dedicate resources the same way that Invita DAO did for longevity for women's reproductive health. I extended it to health because I realized also that endometriosis and PCOS is also not very well funded in terms of research. There are not that many solutions. Women feel like they're left alone with these conditions. What was PCOS? Sorry. Oh my God. It's like, I always forget how to say it properly. And so it's polycystic ovary syndrome. Okay. Thank you. That's good. Just to, like, to say it properly, but it's pretty much your ovaries produce like an abnormal amount of androgens and this causes like hormonal problems as well as pain during your period or just different kind of symptoms that are you're living with on a daily basis. And endometriosis is basically obvious. Some more people are more familiar with it because it does have more, more of, I want to say reputation, but I think people speak more about it. I think it's a growing, I mean, people are becoming more aware of endometriosis is what I understand. Well, specifically also because very young women get it. It doesn't have to do with age. You can be also in your 20s and have it and imagine having like the endometriosis your entire life. So these are conditions that women are living with and I'm not going to be quoted on the data, but I know that some women in this space in reproductive health speak about how there's more money going into um, erectile dysfunction than there is into this. So it tells you about how money is flowing and where research is going and why is this. I don't think there's an impetus to say, let's not, there, I don't think it's being done on purpose. It's just people concern themselves with the things that affect them. Yeah, but I feel like now, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like the large pharma companies and people that are probably investing money into this research. I'm assuming it's somewhat more balanced these days in terms of gender. There's males, females, and then others who prefer to call themselves whatever they want to. But I, I feel like there's enough women who are leading these companies, I think, where there should be more research. But I guess I'm wrong here. So like, why is it really difficult to secure funding for women's health research? Because a lot of the changes that one assumes are already there are not really there. And I know that, I mean, if you spend enough time on Twitter, where I see is the concentration of tech, innovation, health, professional, you would think that when you see like a woman, a female founder, CEO racing 10, 20 million is like a big win. But you think for that one win, there's like the equivalent of 98 other wins for men when you think that 2% of venture capital goes to women, right? Female founders. And of that percentage, so I'm going to give you some, this is on our pitch that 3% of digital health investment goes to femtech companies. So yeah, we're, it's very similar to it's the 2% low. of venture. Yeah, it's quite low. Women researchers, and we're very, we're not saying that what we're doing, we're focusing on female researchers. We want to support that making sure that more women get into getting these grants into Web3. But just to put it in context, 
women get 24% less than their male counterparts on NIH grant. So even that, it's like lower. And then the biggest thing is there's a data gap. Can I ask you a question actually about that? And I don't know if you know this off the top of your head, you might not, but has the trend for funding for women's research and women researchers, has that been going up? Is it getting better or is it getting worse over the last, like, I don't know, 10, 15, 20 years? It's getting better. Yeah, at least that's a good signal. I mean, I think, for instance, for us, because of what we're doing with Athena Dow in reproductive health, we take as a barometer, for instance, what I mentioned Dr. Garrison is doing at the consortium. I think there's a pivotal moment in the 2018 moment period in which I know from my time being in longevity, there's been more funding going into companies that are focused on ovarian aging and uh, big amounts of money too. So to me, that's progress. It's good. Obviously, the idea is Dr. Garrison herself says that there's still so many unanswered questions it's still droplets and like how much we need to get done. And even finding the researchers that are wanting to do this, it's even hard as well. It's a marketing problem too. (laughs) Well, people maybe don't know as much. Maybe it's not an area of interest. I don't know what it like. We have to get to the bottom of this, right? Because knowing a bit more about the work she's doing and some of the projects they've put on hold, given that she cannot even find enough companies that could be, you know, let's say, let's do from, grants then to company formation there's not enough even out there to say let's put our money into a venture capitalist they also want to put their money into companies that are close to bringing something to market or that at least they're going to get into clinical trials right and we're maybe some steps behind but i've talked to a lot of people in the field for the past little while and we know this needs to exist and we know that it's important right now and I think people are more excited about it than they've been in general. It's a bit surprising to me because women make up half of the population and we're just getting excited about it now. Yeah. (laughs) At least we are getting excited, but it's ironic. And there's the other aspect that, for instance, women, females were not mandated into the NIH's trials into 1997. So they didn't have to have female subjects or even animals that were female. And the law was properly passed until 2007, where it was made more robust. But if you think that clinical trials had no data on women, that's like a big thing. Because that means that for all those years, a lot of things were being tested on male subjects, but not female. And females react differently to a lot of things, including medicine. Yeah, there's probably a lot of drugs on the market now that have been in the market for a long time. And the clinical trials were what you're saying is potentially mostly with males and we don't really know the potential risks and side effects for females for those drugs. And and they're in the market and they're being prescribed to women like it's no big deal. So that is interesting. To be fair, Ray, I have to say something. One of her advisors, she's like biotech founder and a very well-respected person in the field. And I mean, she she's out of Europe and Germany, but she said that one of the reasons women were not included in a lot of trials is because you have to be mindful of their reproductive years. And the other thing that I've talked with researchers is when you bring women into trials, there's a layer of complication because of their monthly menstruation. So you have to consider all of these things. Things become more costly or more complicated. And already some of these trials have very limited budgets. So it was not done in like a way to be discriminating against women it was just a practicality thing that unfortunate systems weren't built in to consider this and say instead of giving a budget that is this amount we need to consider having women and capping those budgets to make sure that we can also do this including women i see thanks for sharing that that's good context as well i'm glad that the trend is getting better but obviously there still needs to be some more improvement athena dow which is still sort of like in the early stages, right? I don't think you have built out the smart contract system for it yet or anything like that. But, you know, the conversation has started about this idea. So maybe, can you tell me more about the steps you've taken to learn 
how to launch a DAO properly because I know there's a lot involved and nobody's done it perfectly. I think it's still a pretty new thing, but do you want to discuss that a little bit? I've seen it written that launching a DAO is pretty much just getting a group of people together, getting a multi-sig, having a web, like a Discord, and you're off to the races. <laughs> Sounds about right. <laughs> yeah. It's a bit more involved, like, especially the specific kind of DAO that you want to do, right? There are different mandates. Like I have a friend who did the pizza DAO. So that's like sort of a more playful take of things. And there are DeFi DAOs that focus on treasuries and obviously token coin launches. This is a decentralized science DAO that we're trying to do. So it's similar to Vita DAO or basically the same mandate as Vita DAO, which is a bio DAO. Obviously, your focus is going to be in bringing translational, obviously supporting translational research into reproductive health as well as eventually do the same as Vita Dao, which is investing into very early research or very early companies in this area and help them support them to get them to the next steps. Specifically, because I spoke to you about how their mandate was to try to get more research in areas that people did not put money in. And this is what we want to do, is also support research that maybe traditionally has been overlooked and is Women's health research and specifically reproductive health research is criminally underfunded and undervalued, as I told you some of the figures. So our idea is we're a decentralized science DAO, and our focus is to support institutions that exist already, like the consortium, and figure out how we can work with those kind of places to actually grow the field, get more funding into it. For us, the most important aspect is also, I'm not a scientist or a researcher myself, so my spectrum is always how do we get things to the hands of the user or consumer, or as some doubts call them, the patient. To me, I don't want to say that we're all patients, but how can we really make a difference in women's lives as soon as possible? And um, when you're doing a DAO this way, you have to actually do a lot of legwork in terms of how are you going to do your science working groups? What is going to be the focus? So for instance, reproductive health is really big in the terms of it starts from the moment you have your first menstrual cycle till the end of obviously you're in menopause, right? And that ends. So to say that we're going to figure it out for all of reproductive health, it's a very ambitious task. To even say we're going to do it for one area of it, it's already ambitious. So to start off, we're going to re- uh, focus on ovarian aging, endometriosis, and PCOS. And we chose those because fertility. when you look even at funding for fertility problems, menopause gets this, this, this slowest sliver being like the end of the, your life's fertility. So we don't need to do as much as figuring out new methods of IBF. People are already putting a lot of money into that. We're putting, we're trying to focus our mandate on things that don't see as much funding or as many solutions. And there are a lot of actually researchers that think that even IVF or how we do the process is not even, it's still a bit brutal and that we could even do better. So that even still could be improved. But let's start with the things that, let's start with specifics and then see how we can, what we can do there. Sure. I'm going to ask you a question. We don't have to get technical about it. I know you're not a blockchain developer or technologist per se, and you don't have like extensive scientific research background either. But I am curious, and I think the audience would be curious to know, why do we actually need blockchain to reach this goal? Is there a way to raise funds or create a fund for women's research, medical research in a centralized typical way that you would and then just fund those researchers so there is a way because it already exists and the way that there's already foundations there's the consortium i mean they raise someone like the consortium which consortium again sorry the reproductive longevity at the back institute the one that i was mentioning dr garrison they raise money from philanthropists or foundations right so that area is covered they're already working with researchers and raising money in that manner there's also VC funds that focus specifically on femtech, right? I mean, they're doing that. They're putting the money into femtech and in different areas, not just what we're focusing on. Then there's also 
obviously the communities, the Facebook groups, the like different menopause associations. I think the interesting thing about Web3 or these communities is that you could play a bridge between all three, the community, the investors, and the researchers in the same way that Vita Dow has, which is very interesting. And in all fairness, decentralized science and blockchain, in a way, it's still very much an experiment, right? You can't say that we've all cracked the code already. It's still in the works. And the aspect about blockchain, without being an expert that I find interesting, is people are already curious about things like NFTs, right? And now the whole IP NFT is like another layer. And to me, is the most interesting one because it changes how ownership takes place. It puts it more in the hands of the researcher. It tries to break systems that maybe they're not, maybe we'll figure out that they're not unbreakable. But there's the why not try? And Vita Dow is already on the way to doing this, right? So why not even do this also for women's health? or research, or try to figure out other systems in which you're supporting more the scientists and the ownership of the IP that is less skewed towards the institutional IP holdings, which are very difficult. I know because I've had these discussions, universities don't like the idea of giving up IP, which is understandable. And even you, when you speak to people, it's like, why don't you just create an NLC and like you avoid the whole blockchain thing? you could but the fact of the matter is that the ball got rolling in blockchain and it's not going to stop it's just uh, we're figuring it out how to do it better like eventually every DAO is fail is going to build and a story is going to form it's like a new system and it's not going to go away there's going to be different ways of doing it because even within the ecosystem which is tiny there's already sort of different platforms prop- like coming out so we're still all figuring out how it's going to be like the most efficient ultimate eventually, but it's going to happen. It's going to be part of how science happens. You can't, it's going, it's not going to stop. Yeah, there's a lot of momentum behind it for sure. My thing is how do you get women's health or women researchers to also benefit from this? Because crypto is 80, 90% men well, Web3 crypto, and then you bring it to DSI and it's exactly the same. It's And I love all my friends and Web3, the friends, like, but I know a lot of them are also very supportive and trying to figure out how to get more women involved. And I didn't think that NFTs, like for some, for the women that are very tech savvy investors, they are into NFTs and crypto, like the celebrities that, you know, the whole craze of all the celebrities that came on board. But for regular everyday women, it's not necessarily the NFT picture that's going to sell them into being curious about this ecosystem. And I think reproductive health, something that matters to them, if we onboard them on Web 2 with something very tangible and valuable to them, they could be like a bridge to Web 3 into that ecosystem and support um, communities as well as researchers. Yeah, it also gives opportunity for women who are patients to invest in a certain research area that might affect them or their family member or something. So it opens up that community ecosystem that we didn't have before or that we had in separate worlds before the VC people, the patients community and the researchers. We're all kind of living separately now. It's collectively owned, right? I mean, the whole idea is that you have uh, is participatory instead of passive. And if you have participated, that's more exciting than if you're just watching. If you know the venture fund is investing into something like super cool and amazing that you think, oh, great for the venture fund and the LPs. But imagine yeah. like you're in a situation where you're like, oh, this is super exciting research. And I'm so glad that I own an Athena DAO token because I'm at least participating in this like world. Yeah. Some people might correct me here, but it's sort of like owning stock in a company that's doing something that you think is important. It's sort of like that, but now instead of being owned on a centralized system, or it's peer to peer. So that ma- that's what makes it unique. Well, you'll be very corrected because you don't want to be a security. <laughs> you don't want to be security. <laughs> it depends. I mean, it just depends on how the DAO is established. 
and it has to do with the legal entity or the setup, the, all of that. So that's why DAOs are very, and it varies from DAO to DAO, what you call that token and what the mandate of that token is. So it's almost depends how you set up the DAO. It could be fully within securities regulations. So that token is a securities or is just a token for voting. And it's more of like, oh, I'm part of this change, but not necessarily seen as an investment vehicle. Interesting. There was a proposal on VitaDAO. We've talked about VitaDAO a lot. There's a proposal for a collaboration between Athena DAO and VitaDAO. Can you talk to me a little bit about that and what were the results or what could happen in the future? Yeah, so that happened about three weeks ago. There's going to be an announcement happening in the next two weeks about our um, participating. I guess we're in the final stages. I don't want to like jinx it. By the time this episode comes out, it might be already announced. Yeah, well, hopefully. It's, the announcement is on September 21st, so we are on the final stages. I guess if this episode happens then, we were just in the finalizing everything. To be part of the first cohort of Bio XYC, which is, I guess, sort of an incubator accelerator, a bit more like co-founding of our DAO, that it's a platform that is being started by the Molecule team. And I guess it's supporting different DAOs and bio DAOs. All of them, it's focused on, obviously, scientific research. And from those discussions that we've been having with the team there and the back and forth, Vincent Weiser, who I know you had on your podcast, he's a big, big supporter. Love him. He's being very enthusiastic about bio reproductive longevity. Since we've been discussing this now for months, even within like Vita DAO, starting something there, like a project with a consortium, that's a lot. How I learned even more about how the system of the research and setting up things works. He thought, what, let's do also Vita DAO token swap, like just to support you and also like do some of our, so that you can use some of our resources there also for Athena. Mm-hmm. So he put a proposal up really fast, like literally fast, super fast. It was up. Everybody was excited. Core was excited. It's, it was a 50% Vita token for 2% value when the Athena token came out, vested over four years. Like it was a really good deal for Vita DAO because they weren't giving us liquidity. They were giving us tokens, right? So right. it wasn't like they were investing something that we could use and go buy, like, mm-hmm. go purchase tickets to get us ourselves to every DSI conference or anything like that. It was something that we had to utilize within Vita DAO for 2% of the future Athena token. I know it's not existent, but it could be very valuable in the future if you think in that sense. So I thought, okay, I mean, it's a bit expensive for Athena, but it makes sense. Let's try it. So it was being voted up and then overnight the voting went down like in a way that everybody in the core team was talking about themselves amongst themselves like what happened tim peterson from like vita dao was like messages like this is so crazy we think it's like an attack like a troll attack because it doesn't make sense all of us are like supporting this so then they were asked to raise the stake to three percent for set 50 percent and i literally wrote on the message board it's like well Thank you, but it becomes impossible at 3%. Like, I think we just need to go back to the drawing board and try this another matter later. So we haven't tried yet. I think we're, you know, it's been busy trying to already figure out the other part. You still have negotiations, I guess. It's not, blockchain won't remove negotiations. In fact, it'll probably make those conversations even more important. But again, this was just a start, right? It was, and especially because they told me, it's part of having a DAO that you can have it. Like they totally thought it was like a troll attack. They're not sure. It's part of being on the internet. It's part of being on decentralized. It's part of being of like a new system and specifically a decentralized autonomous organization, right? It's, it's up for voting. I think thanks to this, they're talking about changing some of the voting structure, making sure that w- they had been in discussions about it already, that people have to give a why a yes, why or no. So to make it more accountable, and then if you're going to go do that, then you ha- we know how or why you make that decision and who made that decision. And in a way, it's a more open way of doing things because you're not like some anon 
just, oh, I don't like women, ding, or <laughs> something like that. Because it's just shocking to me, the thing that I said it to them, guys, is just shocking to me because this is a really good deal for you. Like if you were a community, a token holder, I would totally like, yeah, this is beneficial for us. It's like a no brainer. But there was something about reproductive health or I don't know, maybe the name or I don't know. It could have been a series of things that we don't know about. I mean, we're going to obviously do something with Vita Dow, given the very close relationship. It's just about negotiating something else eventually. What makes the most sense? That's fair. And I know you had some activity with Gitcoin as well. Can you talk to us about that experience and some of the pros and cons of using Gitcoin to raise funds? Well, it's our first one. I've helped put some Gitcoin grants together before. But this is the first one that I do obviously lead it. And it was for Athena, Athena Dow. I would say that it's quite easy to do. The only thing was the verification process. And granted, maybe I was a bit, uh, because I hadn't done it properly all myself before, I was a bit freaked out when they give you this message, like you have to verify it's you or it's like a scam notice. And I think everybody gets this, where you have to actually send a message through Twitter for them to like make the verification. And then you get like this message on email that you tweet to say, yes, you are the owner and everything else. But because I was such a, like we put together or get coin grant like a week ahead. So when it came up, I was like messaging. I was like, what is this? Why do we get that? And Vince is like, don't worry, it's the way it works. And I even went to their first call and everybody in the team was super helpful. So we got verified. So I'm very excited where they were already getting small donations, which is great because what people don't realize is that with a quadratic fan funding, it's better to even get one, two, three dollars, many of them. So like it just keeps, you can get in the, the fund, like just the algorithm playing with your grant than getting one 200 or one 300. I mean, I would love to get something from a big donor that is like, Hey, for this round, we want to produce a public good, which is a reproductive health report that it will be available to everyone for free. And we're doing obvious, we're going to be collaborating with different institutions so that the science is really solid. And it's kind of like we're, coming out and saying, okay, Athena Dow, like, this is what we're doing and this is what we're focusing on. And these are the most interesting areas of research and join us in our mission. So I'm sure you've talked to so many different women health researchers, women's health researchers. What is their take or what is their feedback on this? I'm sure they want more research funding. Have they been excited about the idea so far? Yeah, super excited. I get two things. And I get the women that already have the startups have are well on the way where we have to prove that we are using the right science, that we know what we're talking about, that they're like, okay, who are these? I mean, specifically myself, I'm neither a scientist nor a blockchain expert, right? Like who's this random that comes and says like, she's going to like figure a thing. I'm like, I'm not coming to say I'm figuring anything out. I'm coming to say I'm going to support. My interest has always been to support science. How do I make, I'm more interested in female PhDs and researchers also starting companies because I think there's also like a chasm to cross and how men feel more compelled or find the resources faster than maybe sometimes their female colleagues. But the women that are already in the field, we have to prove to them that we're using the right research, that we're doing things cohesively. For the women that are at labs, or that this is like a new thing, they're very excited. And I've met both ends of the spectrum in terms of they think this could be amazing because they think of so many ideas of what they could do. So they don't know. I mean, I'm talking to a researcher in Chile who she already has something that she's working on with a professor in Harvard, but she hasn't been able to figure out how to get it funded. So this for her could be like, it could change everything, right? And she's never heard of anything like that. And she's the only researcher in Chile doing this. So lo and behold, having like this centralized aspect of things and being a DAO that is not only a, not so much an institution could really get together people that 
or researchers or scientists that were did not have these resources before. That makes sense. Also understand that as a way to encourage these women to start companies, you'll be helping them with company formation as part of Athena DAO. Can you talk about that or is that? That's too early on in the sense that uh, that would be like effectively an accelerator. And let's just say with the company formation, when you think that you're part of our network, and you're already connecting them to somebody who's like at the top of the chain. And when we say company formation, the way I'm thinking of it is the same way that it happened in Vita DAO. Is there is a community where there are VCs, where there are researchers, where there are people who are just into longevity. And by simply being in that community, you already get connected to so many different people that you're already expanding your network to actually be encouraged to go further. And I have a perfect example of this. D who is part of our science lead team, what she looks at is very different than let's just say ovarian aging or, or specifically things to reproductive health. But I met D through DAOs. And D's, her, like, her trajectory over the last six months has changed so much because she joined a DAO for the first time, a, side, like a, a D-side DAO, which led her obviously now to be part of our team. But it's open. She already was doing very well in academia. She's at Imperial College in London, but this has opened like another huge layer for her. Like she went to and a fellowship with Vita DAO to a camp in San Francisco for longevity. And the connections she made, the inspiration she got has like made her think, okay, I need to take it to the next level. And now she knows the people that can help her get to the next level. So this is the opportunity that a D-side DAO, where you're going to not just be with academics or in that institution, but meeting people that are also trying new things, doing different things. Maybe you're going to be an investor that has been looking for this area for a while, and they're going to support you. And it's not necessarily that we are the accelerator. It's just how the ecosystem is built to support the notion that you'll find the resources you need to get to the next step. And I find that the most exciting aspect. I see. Okay, that makes sense. So it's not necessarily that you're giving the resources, administrative resources or legal resources for starting a company for these women, but more you're creating the environment where there's potential for them to meet the right people and get the right access to the right resources. Fair. That makes sense. And especially because I think in the long term, we really want to work with other, whether it is an institution, accelerators, anyone that's in the reproductive health field, we want to complement what they're already doing. It's not, it shouldn't be a zero sum game. Like I'm going to do everything and we're going to be like the biggest one. I don't like replication of efforts. I think that's like one of the worst things that we do in business. I know that competition is healthy. But collaboration in fields that are so underfunded, it's super crucial to move things forward. So if we can even eventually work with accelerators that focus on this and refer or researchers that have ideas, stuff like that, so it doesn't have to necessarily stay within the DAO, but really moves the needle forward, that's super important too. And I think Vita DAO with all the longevity prices, collaborations that they've established with other orgs has been crucial, right? I mean, there's the Foresight Institute, there's the Metusola Foundation in Longevity. For us, we're probably going to do similar things also in the pipeline just to collaborate even with other DAOs, Vita DAO, Lab DAO. It's amazing how many DAOs have been popping up. And I, I mean, I think it's great. They all have slightly different models. But most of them are very much the same. I wonder, actually, this is a question one of my community members asked for you when I mentioned I'm going to be interviewing you, was about if this is just another Vita Dow spinoff, like what lessons have you learned from Vita Dow that you're trying to apply at Athena Dow? I love the question because one of the things in the negotiations or back on discussion with the team at Molecule for BioXYC is how do we just not make this like, I don't want to be a copy paste of Vita Dow or um, you know what I mean? But I think their thought process is we've experienced so much with Vita Dow 
the MVP has to be a model that we already know works in terms of why try to like experiment like a maniac at the beginning when we can just set you going in a way that's very cohesive and we know the track record on things. So to be like a bio DAO, there are very specific metrics and milestones that you have to meet. And they would be similar to some of the milestones that beta DAO met already. That's obviously their theory in terms of like how things would work, which to me makes sense. How for us, one of the big things that would be different from the Vita down model is obviously we really need to make the crossover to the general public. How do we create this ecosystem or how do we do onboarding that really focuses on onboarding women or a community that's not traditionally on Web3? So you need endows. The things that are crucial are tokenomics, governance, onboarding, and tasking and bounties, right? So the onboarding for us will be like a very crucial aspect on how we need to do things a bit different from Vita DAO. But that comes on later because our focus is the MVP, which is how are you a bio DAO, right? How do you establish the science and the roadmap and pipeline? For you to be able to onboard enough research projects to obviously raise a treasury. And then from raising a treasury, how do you keep that treasury going? But the second aspect and layer is, and obviously this is going to be in the discussions when we do the governance and tokenomics, how do we keep things open-ended in a way that it's easy for us to think of different ways in which we really focus on onboarding? Not just enthusiasts and web three, not just researchers and web two, web three enthusiasts, but also just female communities, women communities out there that are interested in resources. I mean, finding out more about evidence based science or a community that could help them refer them to the best options, potential clinical trials. Yeah, that's a big one, actually. Clinical, because if you think about a lot of these early stage research that Athena DAO or Via DAO or other DAOs are funding. These people that are investing early on, especially the patients, they are potentially perfect to be part of the clinical trials for these drugs in the future years down the line after the basic research is completed. Or they may know somebody at least. So there's already an interest about the treatment, right? Because they've invested early. So getting recruit subjects for the trial might be a little bit more simpler or hopefully more easy to find people to to be part of that? Well, there are tons of female clinicians or women researchers, clinicians, even male also. Not, I mean, there are tons of clinicians, not just female ones, that they could be running certain very small trials with their patients or patients that arrive with them. They wouldn't cost a lot of money. But the reason why they don't get the funding is because these would have to be public good trials, meaning there's not going to be an outcome where a pharma pharmaceutical company can make money off it. It's just to like prove something or improve a treatment. And I think there's a lot of opportunity in that because those are things that really touch people's lives. Maybe the pharmaceutical is not going to make money, but the patient is going to be treated better. So how do you devise a system where you can have part of your treasury putting money on things that are like investments so that you see returns? Or putting funding into things that you will see a return so you keep your treasury and then you can put more money again after to other things. Keep it flowing. And how do you put part of your treasury to public public goods funding? Meaning things that you know is not necessarily a return for anyone, but that it's going to actually help people. Because it could just improve. It could be like a big difference in how you treat a certain condition. However... Because it's not a pill or it's not something that you can put an IP to, then you might not see a return. But there are a lot of things that we're living on the floor that are not happening because we're always looking for returns. And I think the difference with the centralized science, if we truly look at some of the more, I call it utopian or ideal vision of it, there should be a part of it that is always dedicated to public goods that you're not just caring about the returns interesting there was another question from a community member it was about the gitcoin grant and they're wondering how does this benefit early investors 
like is there anything that early investors get from investing in the grant or is it more like a donation type of thing so the grant it's a donation the buy-in's nature that's why it's called a, a grant because when you invest into you're not investing into our token when you go through gitcoin right you're putting in whatever coin like you're using and then it goes into a pool then it goes into the quadratic like the algorithm for the quadratic funding and at the end of the grant those funds are like dispersed to us with that what you know, it's just how it works for instance, going back to Foresight and VitaDAO, they did their longevity prices within the Gitcoin grant, and so did Impetus grants, which is a longevity one. So that is just money that you donate because you believe in the cause or you think it's important. And I think when you and I had our first discussion, one of the things I say is that reproductive health is not something that only affects women. Right now, it's something that affects all of society. It's something that affects all of society because two things. We're aging fast. So by 2030, there's going to be 1.1 billion women in menopause. Menopause is debilitating to a lot of women. This is lost man- This is lost productivity, lost years, bad health for women for a long period of time that also affects the treasuries of our healthcare. So this is not just something that because your mom has like menopause far away from you. It doesn't touch you. It touches all of society if women are not healthy. And there's, as I said, half of the women in the world, it's 49.8 of the population of the world is women. Just almost, not quite half, but almost half. It's the same across the board, the US, Europe. If you think that so many women are going to also be aging and they're going to have like conditions that are going to make them more eventually from aging, having to have more health care, less time to work, become more dependent, this is a bad imbalance. And this is already a problem with the aging world. Not only women, but all of us. That's why longevity is so crucial too. The other aspect is fertility rates are declining. And there are scientists that are calling fertility a modern age problem because Women are having to have more IVF to have babies, to conceive. There's just uh, because women are also putting off having children later, having them later, we're pushing back this time. They're finding that IV, that uh, freezing your eggs is not the insurance that you thought you had. I mean, there's a plethora of issues that I know everybody's favorite tech entrepreneur Elon Musk keeps tweeting about this and there's like a whole joke about him having 10 I don't know how many children he has already yeah yeah about populating the world but he keeps tweeting about this and there are a lot of people economists that are actually raising the alarm and they say I know there's like so much where we think we don't have enough resources but just imagine the unbalance of most of the world being quote-unquote old by 2050 and not enough people, adults, to help support that older world. And I'm not just saying the economical side, but people that are sick need help. And already finding retirement homes is hard. Already finding staff that work in those homes is hard. I can't imagine with most of us being older by 2050, what it would be like if we don't have a population balance. So reproductive health should matter to everybody. And that's why the grant... It's a donation, and I really want to appeal to people's doing good side of things. It's not just, oh, women. No, it's literally, this matters, and we should pay more attention to it. Every man should care about this, too. And just as a side note, fertility is starting to become a problem for men as well. Great points. These are really important points. I think you're right in many cases here. It's not just a woman's problem or a woman's issue. It's a people issue that we need to collectively think about and try to solve so thanks for sharing all that with us yeah i just i wanted to ask you about the roadmap for the DAO. like what's your plan for the rest of the year and maybe next year and then if there's anything else i have a few other personal questions i want to get to as well the other last thing why reproductive health is important is because this is something that ties back to longevity and the work that i've been doing with that is so i believe anybody who's 25 right now pretty much if they're healthy, they work out, they eat healthy, they could potentially do 100. This is kind of like a contradiction because over the past three years, 
the mortality rate, I mean, basically the health span has, uh, the lifespan has actually decreased in North America simply because of COVID and people. It's ironic because we are on the way to living longer, but at the same time, this three years saw a decrease of lifespan. However, I do think that there's going to be a lot of 25-year-old people that live to 100. So my question is, if we are going to live now on average the 100 plus year life, and a lot of tech entrepreneurs talk about this, longevity enthusiasts, how is it that we're keeping the options for women the same as in cave times? Which is, well, your best years for like having babies is literally from 16 to 25. What woman in this day and age is going to be able to afford a child at that point? One, two, not many. And this is one of the issues the more conservative guys are like, oh, women are going to be like working. Well, maybe they don't want to, but we live in a time where you have to. <laughs> it's dynamics have changed. So for women to have their best years at a period where they're not financially stable, our man, I want to have children. It's an imbalance to that hundred year life. So we need to find these solutions because we found we can do transplants. We can have incubators. We've changed so much of our predestined biology that there's no reason we cannot change this. Interesting. The roadmap. (laughs) That's the roadmap. No, that's good points. I think there's a lot of good people like yourself trying to work on it, trying to figure out how this can. Oh yeah. There's a lot of amazing companies, a lot of researchers, a lot of, I mean, I know that for instance, things like the, I know a lot of my friends in this space and they're not excited about their artificial womb. I am. So I'm like a tech bro that way. And I think it's also because a lot of women my in the past 10, 20 years probably made the decision not to have kids and maybe they want to have them later. And a lot of these women will be economically and financially secure by the time it's too late. A lot of gay couples, you know, I mean, there's just so many people that are not able to have kids because biology is not on their side. Meanwhile, I'm Mexican. I was born in Mexico. I saw 13 and 14-year-old children, women, having children simply because biology. And you think of that women that can have a child, give it a good life. They have a hard time adopting. They have a hard time uh, because of biology is too late. But then biology predicates that women that are poor, have no education and no way of maintaining a child or having a child just because. So in this way, I think technology and science helps puts a balance to things that sometimes are not balanced. Wow, that is interesting. Welcome to the Health Unchained News Corner. As you may already know, Health Unchained reaches a global audience and our mission is to help the entire healthcare world understand how lives will be impacted by blockchain technology. This news corner highlights a specific state in the USA and their recently signed law that allows vital records to be issued on the blockchain. That's right. California has signed into law a regulatory bill that instructs county record offices to allow the use of blockchain technology and verifiable credentials. Introduced by Senator Robert Hertzberg, the bill will create new opportunities for California citizens to manage their blockchain-issued birth, death, or marriage records in addition to the conventional chemically sensitized security paper. To clarify, the use of blockchain for vital records does not replace the original paper certificate the counties will continue to issue. The blockchain record will be an alternative way to authenticate records. It wasn't clear which platform technology will be used in county clerk's offices. However, we can get some clues from the Infosys Public Services collaboration with Amazon Managed Blockchain that enabled Riverside County announced in 2021. The pilot used the open source Hyperledger Fabric blockchain framework and allowed anyone to check the authenticity of records and issue digitally secured PDF copies. Vital records are just the beginning of the important data that will incorporate into decentralized ledgers. We believe government collaboration is essential for widespread Web3 adoption and awareness. But we need to tread carefully when considering which data should be accessible by our local, state, and federal governments. 
Check out the News Corner links in the show notes for more about the new law in Riverside County Pilot. And now, back to the conversation with your host Ray and Laura Minaquini, co-founder of Athena Dow. Well, again, I wanted to end with a few personal questions about yourself. Do you have a favorite book that you would recommend that maybe has influenced you? I have so many, but I think the one that I keep going to and it has nothing to do with science or anything interesting or smart is The Confederacy of the Dwances. The Confederacy of? The Dwances. Yeah. So this book was written in the 60s, I believe, 50s, 60s. There's a really crazy story about the book. Every time I read it, I laugh so hard, and I've read it like three or four times. But the very interesting part about this story is that this story is written by this guy who lives with his mother, and he's like this kind of like loser guy, and the book is, I think, loosely based on him. He leaves his mother the book. He dies. The mother shops around the book like crazy. Finally, somebody says, like takes mercy of her, or I don't know how, I can't remember how it happens. Mm. The book wins a Pulitzer Prize. And I enjoy the story behind the book. And when you read the book, this guy had never written anything in his life. The intelligence in which this book was written, it's just, to me, it's also like a testament of, there's so much human creativity that we don't know about because he never makes it to the top. And then you get these gems that had no bearings in society, nothing to do, that are like a gift to culture. And I just find it very touching, the whole read it, laugh like crazy, and think this is one of the smartest things I've ever read. And the guy was like, not a scientist, I mean, not a writer, not a reporter, nothing. He was just some dude living in his mom's basement, pretty much. (laughs) Interesting. Yeah, that's called uh, the Confederacy of Dunces, right? So definitely by John Kennedy Tools. Yes, read it. And the other thing is there's a crazy story that they tried to make this movie many times. And it's almost like cursed because if people look it up, if they want to get into rabbit holes, it's like a crazy one. So there's many layers of it, but I highly recommend it as something that you would laugh so hard and it's so smartly written. Maybe they need to make a DAO for this to raise money for this movie. <laughs> oh, no, they already did it for the uh, Jodorowsky's Dune, and that didn't work out so well. <laughs> Fair enough. Do you have a favorite role model? It could be like a scientist or business leader that inspires you. I did think about that one, and I would say that I have a lot of admiration for Madame Curie. Mm. When I was actually looking for the name, I looked up Curry Dow and Curry Bio, and actually a very famous startup founder in the space in health tech already has it. Curry uh, Bio, he's doing, I'm not sure, it's something that it support like biotech founders, but um, she's one of the women that led science. In, in credit, I mean, she won, what, two Nobel Prizes. She was the force of that marriage. She had like a scientific life for her entire like life. And the other part is, she exposed herself to radiation during World War One. Like, did I mean she also was like doing advocacy? She continued to work. She was like the most incredible, powerful woman. When you think when she was doing this, and she also had an affair when her husband died, which she was vilified for, mm-hmm. and dragged through like what you would be like the TMC of that era. And, Paris, France, like all the newspapers. So being an independent woman who could have a life past the marriage was like, I think there was an affair because the guy was married. But when you think that that woman did all of that in the turn of the century, you're like, wow, incredible. Yeah, that's definitely a risk taker there. But thankfully, she provided a lot to society. So I'm grateful for her as well. Laura, this has been a really great conversation. Learned a lot about Athena Dow, Dow's in general, and then women's reproductive health and research. So I just want to thank you for joining me today. And if there's anything else you wanted to share with the audience, I want to give you some time to last kind of takeaways for the show here. Yeah. So one thing that I don't think we went very clear on the roadmap right now, that what we're going to focus on, obviously, because we're going to be, our core mission is obviously to get more funding into reproductive health. 
is uh, establishing ourselves as a clear bio DAO in decentralized science and DSI. So meeting certain milestones that clearly show that our area that we're going to go out the door to focus on is how to find, how to have a pipeline a build for onboarding researchers, focusing on those areas that I mentioned to you. And then the second part to that is once that gets going, once we raise the treasury, that's, you know, after we did, we established the pipeline is raise the treasury, depending on where the market is at in three, six, eight months, whether we go right off the bat, right away with onboarding venture or a token, that's going to, we're going to define it, obviously, as we build the pipeline. And the other big aspect for us is getting more of the community in general. So from your community members, from other communities, it's so crucial that we get more people involved in this cause. And I think, as I said, it's not just a DAO for women, and it's a DAO that should work, should matter to anyone, everyone. Because reproductive health doesn't just affect women. And eventually, hopefully, we can also touch in men's reproductive health. Because I know this is like a thing that it's an issue. Women's men's fertility is also declining. There's now startups freezing also your sperm. And I would recommend it to men that are quite young to also start doing that because of endocrine factors and many other things, we live in with much more toxicity. We have more chemicals in our food. We're not living the same as our grandparents or great-grandparents. It's like another life. You can't compare life then to life now. So we have to be more proactive on being involved in the science of health. And that's what we want to make sure that people also understand. We're not just oh, this is just a community for women and it's just a cause that affects women. It's something that war- that affects everyone and hopefully more people can get involved and also people that are into just blockchain, new technologies, because there's so much to do. I meet so many other people. There's so many other projects going on that are so exciting and complementary to this that we need to work together and have participation, active participation, not only from women but from men and from different kind of expertise what's the best way to reach you if uh, anyone listening wants to get in touch we have a discord you can find it we also have a twitter at mm-hmm. athena dow please join sure do look it up but spell it properly because we've been tagged lately with just the dow and i couldn't get the athena dow just like that we had to do the funky underscores but on our Discord, you can find our link tree, which has our, sorry, on our Twitter, you can find our link tree, which has our Discord. And uh, we also are doing a lot of Web2 stuff. We're doing workshops. We're going to start doing a lot of more re- reaching out on Web2, obviously using other tools for where you can find more women. There's an inclination to do more Instagram and TikTok at later stages. But you can find uh, Athena Dow at, on Twitter, myself, Laura Minkini. I'm there, very active. And obviously in the Discord, we'd love to welcome you. And anybody who has any ideas, any projects, complimentary things, we are looking for collaborators and obviously to build an ecosystem that benefits not just reproductive health, but to then move science forward. Laura McKinney, thank you very much. Thank you so much, Ray. It was a great conversation. Hey, all you cyberpunk health warriors and nimble digital disruptors. Check out healthunchained.org and remember to subscribe to Health Unchained on Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Play, and iTunes. Join the Health Unchained community on our Telegram group t.me slash healthunchained. If you enjoyed this episode, tell your friends, your bosses, your teams, your students to listen and subscribe. Thank you.